So welcome to the Actual Astronomy uh, podcast. How are you this afternoon or this morning, I guess, this time, Shane? Oh, I'm doing all right. And yourself? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. So this is kind of our, our solstice episode, episode 22 of the Actual Astronomy podcast, where we talk about all the weird and wonderful facets of amateur astronomy with uh, myself, Chris, and Shane. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So we had a pretty exciting thing happen last Sunday. Not only did we do episodes uh, 20 and 21 of our podcast, uh, you actually brought up Noctilucent Clouds. Do you want to just give a little bit of a refresher of, of that? Yeah, so noctilucent clouds are somewhat of a rare phenomena that you can observe right now during this time of the year. Um, part of it is you have to be at northern latitudes, um, like anywhere from 50 to 70 degrees, uh, or I think southern latitudes actually within that same uh, window. Um, puts you in a position to observe these things. And what they are is uh, they're illuminated clouds that appear after the sun sets. So what will happen, you'll, you'll be able to observe these things. I think it's within one to two hours after sunset um, and, and only this time of the year. So the sun really doesn't dip too far below the horizon. And while it's set and we can't see the sun with our own eyes, it's still illuminating um, really high parts of the atmosphere. And there's these very high level clouds called noctilucent clouds once they're illuminated that become visible at night. So the way to uh, kind of identify that you've actually observed these things is, um, you know, during twilight or astronomical twilight, a cloud in the sky will just appear black. You'll just see the silhouette. But if you see these things illuminated, then you're observing some noctilucent clouds. And, and they're um, pretty bright. Like, I remember yeah. hearing of them. I'd never really seen them much. I'd only seen them once uh, during a, a transatlantic flight, just like, basically the month before I moved out here. And then after I moved out here and, and saw them, I was, I was really shocked how bright they are. So there, there's kind of like no confusing them once, once you've seen them. They're, like I say, like almost like an iridescent white or like a, like a neon white almost. Like, so it's not like, you're, you're never really wondering, is that them? Isn't that them? Like a typical cloud will have some gray tones to it or like pinkish tones, like you were saying, like darker tones. And these things are just white, okay? Yeah, yeah, they really stand out. And, and the other thing too, like in a way it, it might be easy to miss them, uh, especially like the ones we saw Sunday night, which were quite like, they occupied a large area of the sky. Sometimes you'll only see these things skimming kind of in the Northern horizon, but the ones that we saw were almost half the sky, I think. And um, it's easy to disregard them uh, because in some in some I, like, I, I kind of think they look like regular clouds, like daytime clouds, but then you have to stop yourself and say, whoa, you know, the sun set two hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these, these are not normal clouds. Yeah, I actually think, just, just occurring to me off the top of my head, I think noctilucent actually means night shining. Because not okay. uh, would be the, the base word for night in Latin, I believe. But yeah, it was pretty exciting. So last week, as we went over like our our week coming up and, and things that you might be able to observe at this time of uh, year or, or these particular weeks. Um, I kind of had detailed out some stuff. You had actually sent me a note earlier in the week talking about noctilucent clouds. I'd forgot to include it. Unfortunately, you reminded me because it had completely skipped my mind. 
And then uh, you talked about them a bit and I was like, oh, that's neat. I think you even made a comment, like the only time I ever see them is when you kind of bring them up. And then I went out that night, looked out my window and boom, knocked loose in clouds that night. I couldn't believe yeah. it. So I sent you a text and you're like, yep, that's them. <laughs> and yeah, I was, I was surprised. Like when you sent me that text, um, I went outside around, I think 10 PM, which is, uh, probably about an hour and a half after sunset. Yeah, last something week. Yeah, like it was. Yeah, yeah, something like that within a few minutes. Yeah. Yep. And wow, I couldn't believe it. Uh, they were just glowing. And like I said, they it was a huge chunk of the sky. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah they weren't in the north. Typically, we've seen them in the north before. And these ones were, were well, really more or less uh, all over, like sort of the western and coming in kind of thing. Um, yeah, they, and it, they were you know, scattered a bit more than typical, but it was. And then uh, you sent, you, you texted me that beautiful image that Alan Dyer took over uh, just outside of Calgary. Yeah. So for, here's a quick plug too for our Twitter account. Uh, if you go on Twitter and go to at actual astronomy um, and just look at our retweets and likes, um, you'll see that uh, I think I, I for sure liked it and I might've retweeted an Alan Dyer tweet from seven days ago so that would be or maybe it was the monday actually june 9th and alan dyer he's a great astrophotographer great astronomer and he captured um essentially what we saw the noctilucent clouds so if for for all of the listeners if you you're wondering what chris and i are really talking about go to our twitter and uh, you'll be able to see it yeah and alan is a is a great astrophotographer and uh and was a great observer uh when he was doing a lot of observing uh and alan and i've done lots of events together like out in the uh, jasper national park dark sky preserve so great great amateur to uh to get to know um yeah so that was really exciting and very unexpected i was really happy about that because our weather for observing has really been poor uh, for you and I and, and many people out west, we have had just rocking winds, eh? Yeah, um, you know, yesterday I think the gusts were around 90 to 100 kilometers an hour. So that's 60 miles per hour. Um, you just can't observe with, the, you know, telescopes or even binoculars really in that kind of wind. So be, to be able to see some noctilucent clouds where you just need to look out your window, uh, that's kind of nice. Uh, it changes things up a little bit. And, you know, the wind here is, is different. So like where, where I'm from out east and we have the boreal forest or right in the forest where I'm at, um, you know, you can have 40 odd kilometer hour wind gusts and you can go out and set your tent up, not really worry about staking. I mean, you probably should, but, you know, as long as you're there with it while you're setting it up, it's no big deal. And, you know, you get some gusts in that around, but, you know, to be out and around in the 40 kilometer hour winds, um, you know, not great for observing, but you can kind of like I've gone to lots of star parties and set up or whatever. But here in the open prairie, like you get these, they call them like a straight wind or something like that. And boy, like 40 kilometer an hour winds is a non-starter for doing many activities outside. Like you're not going to set up a tent or anything because you're, you're getting that, that full wind just about everywhere. And that's, that's a huge difference that I notice out here. So if it's saying it's 40, like in the Maritimes, you'll get, you might get it from time to time, but it kind of has to work its way down through the trees and, you know, it, there, there's more hills and rolls and that sort of thing. So you're typically going to have a little bit of shelter most places, 
but here it's just full on. You got 40, you're going to be right in 40 the majority of the time. You're not going to really be able to do much, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. So when you're planning a, a, like to go out observing, Chris, with your telescope, what is your maximum threshold of wind? Like when do you say, nope, too windy, it'll cause too much vibration, I'm I just not doing it? Yeah, that's a, an excellent question. I never really thought about it much before I moved out here. Um, and that the answer to that question is pretty clear. It's about 20 to 25. Once you get to 26, 27, it's out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. So, in a, you know, and I mean, for other reasons too, there, there's a few things that occur. One uh, is not just the, the wind and that, that that's buffeting you around and that that's always unpleasant. Um, but you can also get like a lot of dust stirred up like here, like, I mean, we've gone out and had like marginal conditions, like 25 to 35 and you turn a flashlight on, you can see just the crud in the air mm-hmm. and you'll, you'll hear me every once in a while. I'll mute because it does bother my asthma a bit and uh, was bothering it much more last week. I think things have just kind of blown around so much now that all the little particles are, are embedded or uh, unfortunately the little pieces of the ripped off shingles and all my neighbor's houses have kind of, you know, settled down now. So, uh, but yeah, it definitely creates a, a big stir in the atmosphere. And then the seeing conditions of course are going to be uh, extremely poor as well. So were you yeah. able to get out to, to take a look at anything on, on the eighth, ninth, we had, uh, Jupiter uh, and the moon pairing up uh, as well as Saturn pairing up with the moon on the ninth. No, no, I didn't get a chance to observe any of that. How about you? Were you able to take a look? No, I kind of wish I'd get up on the 12th or I think the 12th might've been okay. But like, I find that, um, gets so impacted, like the sleep gets so impacted by, by the wind. And, you know, we, we have day jobs that require a lot of uh, concentration and attention. So I've been trying to get some good sleep on the nights where, where it's not too windy, but like last night it was so windy. I probably got three hours sleep. Um, but I did get up yesterday morning to go out oh, wow! <laughs> and I went out for three seconds. It was just, I wanted to get up and I really wanted to see Mars and the moon. I thought maybe if it's not too bad, I'll set up my telescope. And, and no, it, I got up. I tried to go out. I can't really say that I even saw the moon. There was, first of all, there's still lots of clouds around. So it was kind of cloudy, like a lot of big broken clouds. I could see the moon, but I just got blown right back into the house. Like it was, like you said, gusting into the eighties or nineties, just howling. And so that just wasn't happening, unfortunately. So, you know, last week, the big observation was, uh, was really seeing those, those noctilucent clouds. That said though, one night I did get out with my binoculars in the yard. Like I think it was, uh, it might've been the night of the 11th. There was one night that was decent and I got out and I did a big scan around and just looked at some, cause it was just so nice to actually be looking at stars again without getting, yep. you know, slammed by the wind. And uh, yeah. And you know, that again is just such another great plug for, for having the binoculars. Cause what with it getting um, dark so late these nights, like it really wasn't shaping up to be a great evening. There was lots of cloud in that around. And then, um, it had gotten dark and I was, uh, doing some work or something. And around 10 30 or 11, I, I went to go to bed and just kind of looked out and went, Ooh, it's, it's pretty clear. So I just grabbed the binoculars and did like, you know, a 15, 16 minute tour around the sky. And, you know, I, st- I had to get to bed at a reasonable hour. So I didn't want to stay up much past midnight. And 
but yeah, I had like a little binocular session and, you know, I looked at some of those, those open clusters like up, up and off of Eucas, like the uh, summer beehive, uh, you know, and a few, a few objects like that looked up in through Cygnus. It's just nice to go out and, uh, and to look at some stars. So have you had your binoculars out at all, Shane? You've got some pretty interesting binocular sets there. Yeah. Um, no, you know, I, I probably should have. I, I was just doing some naked eye in the backyard a couple nights when I would take the dog out to use the facilities before we went to bed. And Cygnus and uh, Lyra are just perfectly positioned right now for yeah. some nice binocular observing in the backyard or even telescopic if uh, the conditions present themselves. Um, because they're, they're at a reasonable placement in the sky early enough that um, just a, it, it, it's a nice session. Yeah, so hopefully here, like hopefully once we get through this this last, hopefully it's like the last stormy weather we have for a while over the next five or six days. Hopefully, uh, hopefully as it starts to get dark again uh, towards the end of the month and beginning of next month, we'll we'll get back uh, back to it. That'd be awesome. So this week we have a few events uh, coming up. Unless there was anything else you you happen to see last week of interest? No, no, that's all I have to report. Yeah. So June seventeenth. Days that is that uh, Sunday Monday that's Wednesday yeah Wednesday so that's gonna be uh, Wednesday morning uh, Uranus is gonna be four degrees north of the moon um, I'm thinking I don't know I, I think the sky is gonna be too bright to see these kind of things on the 18th we've got the moon near the Pleiades um, again you'll probably have to be much further south than we are to see that because because I think we're really only getting like a few hours of, of anything remotely dark. Uh, and then the 19th, we have the moon, Venus, and Aldebaran in the morning sky. Um, the 20th is the solstice. Are you, do you have any big solstice uh, celebrations planned? No, no. Do, no. You, do you do anything for it? I, I never. Yeah, me either. Yeah. I know some people do. There's a buddy of mine. He's a uh, kind of a weather nut, and uh, he likes to get together to have a little celebration. I'm not sure why, but uh, eh, each to their own. Yeah. Yeah, I spent a summer in England doing archaeology and uh, went to some stone circles and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, if you can get make it out to Stonehenge, I always thought that would be kind of cool. But uh, on the 21st, there's that annual solar eclipse uh, visible from, from parts of Africa and southern Pakistan, northern India and China. So uh, you and I aren't going to see any of that, but uh, maybe there's people out there. I see we have more and more listeners every day. So uh, there could be people out there that are that are within range, and uh, you know if that's the case, you know definitely suggest uh, finding uh, some people with the uh, the experience and proper equipment uh, to safely view and to view with. Uh, looking at the sun can cause you to go blind, so uh, be super careful with that. I, I wouldn't go out and start experimenting um, anything to do with with solar observing without some some good experience like I never personally I never looked at the sun would never have looked at the sun if I didn't get involved in an amateur astronomy club and kind of see how it's done uh, safely with with other people so that would be cool though to see the solar eclipse um, new moon is on the 21st of course uh, you really can't see a new moon that's just when it's uh, uh, darkened out so yeah so hopefully we can get out a bit and see some of these planets. I really would like to start observing Mars a little bit in the morning sky because it's now greater than 10 arc, uh, arc minutes. So I'd be excited to, uh, to take a look at that for sure. That would be pretty exciting, I think. 
Yeah, for sure. There's there's a few comments too that maybe I'll mention. Uh, oh, really? People have a shot at. Okay. Um, one is uh, what is it here? Comet C twenty nineteen U six, um, and I I think it's just known as Comet Lemon uh, two two M's. I think uh, that must have been the discoverer. I think uh, Mount Lemon okay. Observatory, isn't it? That, that oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Robotic ones. It, I could be completely wrong, and I could be insulting a gentleman named Lemon out there, but that would be coincidental. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so it's at magnitude 6.4, which is actually pretty oh, wow. bright. And yeah. it's, bright, it's getting brighter. The problem for us in the Northern Hemisphere is it's in sextants. So it's quite low, uh, you, you know, at sunset. We won't be able to see it in kind of where we live at 50 degrees, probably until around June 26th. Okay. Uh, but if you're in the Southern Hemisphere uh, or further south than we are, you probably uh, can, you know, take a, take a run at that one, see if you can find it. Well, that's pretty exciting. Uh, 6.4, like, so the people know, like that's, not something you can really see with your unaided eye. You need binoculars, but that definitely is in the range of virtually any binocular from anywhere that's remotely dark. Like you want to be out of a city, but anywhere out of a city should be able to get that. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Next one is Comet uh, C2020 F8. Uh, um, it's currently magnitude around 7.4, but this one's fading. Um, and it's low in the sky in Auriga until the, uh, about the mid month. So yeah. right about now, I guess. So that's getting down there too, cause that's in the Western sky now. So yeah, yeah. That'll be a lot more challenging, especially in June. I think that um, probably a little on the faint side where it is to see. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last one that I'll mention here is Comet, uh, C2017 T2, uh, discovered by Panstars and Ooh. it's currently magnitude 8.2. So again, this one is faint. You know, you'll definitely need binoculars or a telescope. Uh, this one is fading a bit, uh, and it's traveling from Ursa Major into, uh, what is it here? Canis Vena. Yeah. yeah. There so you go. So that's kind of higher. And although this one's a little bit fainter, like another magnitude fainter, um, this would be more like a telescopic uh, object. And that would definitely be visible through like, a, like anything like a six inch or larger telescope would, uh, would pull that in handily from, from like any location that's reasonably dark at all. Like from a dark, dark site, you could probably get that with, uh, with a good size uh, little telescope, like an 80 or hundred millimeter telescope should be able to bring that in from a dark side. Yeah, cool. absolutely. I'm, I'm not too sure if any of these comets have like long illustrious tails or anything like that. Um, just to give the listeners, a, you know, an idea of what you can see with a comet. Sometimes you'll see the bright ball with a tail and then the, the length of that tail can vary quite a bit. And sometimes there's even some, you know, unique characteristics or detail within the tail um, but sometimes these comets just appear as a single point of light, but it's kind of a fuzzy ball. You know, you'll, you'll see stars in the field that are sharp points of light, but then you'll see this fuzzy thing that you can't focus into a sharp point of light. And sometimes that's the comet. Um, so, um, I'm saying that just to set some expectations that if you decide to hunt these things down, they may not look like, um, you know, some comets that, you know, have been on the covers of magazines and things like that. Yeah. And the really neat thing about comets, and you, you've kind of mentioned it already, but, uh, but to me anyway, is first of all, they move. So it, you can actually see them moving and they move very slowly. So I think sometimes people get like meteors 
that comes streaking in and are visible for just like a split second and comets confused. Uh, but comets are these uh, large, uh, much harder uh, hunks of rock and ice uh, that are out there in our, in our solar system uh, that come in towards the sun and then, and then parts of them start to uh, melt off in the way that maybe fog would form over a lake and then that trails out behind them. But, but they're very hard. I mean, one of the companies that I work for or worked for in the past was said systems and, and we were, we worked on the, uh, on the Rosetta mission and uh, you know, it was found out through, through that, that exploration of, uh, of that comet. Uh, I always want to say it's Chelyabinsk, but it's not, it's, it is a Russian name though. Um, and it kind of like bounced off, like the lander was never able to kind of hook on properly to, to the comet because it was much, much harder than, than it was thought. But it's neat that, that they come in and you, you can see them moving amongst the stars and then you can see this material coming off them. Um, so they're changing and they're changing in brightness as well. So you kind of get to see three different things. So typically when you look at anything in the nighttime sky, whether it's a star cluster or a galaxy or a nebula, uh, typically, you're really not seeing much in the way of change. It's pretty much in the same position um, every night. I mean, there's some variable nebulae, but boy, like the changes and all that are going to be pretty subtle. Whereas a comet from night to night, you're going to see it make its progress uh, amongst the stars. We had a really bright one a few years ago that that moved so fast, you could actually see it moving amongst the stars live in real time. Um, and then the other thing is you're going to see that brightness uh, change over a period of time. You might see a tail form. You might see a couple tails form, um, and uh, yeah, it's just fascinating to to see such such change uh, actually taking place uh, in the nighttime sky as you're out there. Yeah, for sure. Maybe while we're you know on this topic of comets and things that kind of move in the sky, there's a few asteroids too that are you know somewhat observable. They're favorable uh, in terms of their closeness and brightness to Earth. Um, one is Seven Iris. Uh, another is Two Pallas. And then probably one of the more famous ones is Cirrus. Uh, they're all favorable to observe. And uh, if you get your star charts out and find the field, the way to really confirm an observation of an asteroid is to observe it one night, do a little sketch of where you think it is amongst the star field, and then come back the next night or a couple nights later and see if it has moved within that field. And um, they're kind of fun to look at. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've looked at a few uh, asteroids over the years, and uh, sometimes you'll get them. I think Pallas or Cirrus, or maybe both of them get to naked eye visibility every once in a while. And and when they do, I typically do try to track them down from from a dark side because I think they hover around like fifth or sixth magnitude or something like that. So you need a pretty good dark sky to see them but through a telescope or binoculars. No problem getting them. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know I've been to the Pan Stars Telescope eh, that that uh, finds a lot of these comets. Really? Yeah. So where is it located? It's located on Haleakala in Hawaii. And, and uh, maybe I should say this first, you need to make arrangements to get in there. This is not open to the public. Um, it's available to uh, professional astronomers uh, and maybe those of us who, who would have liked to be professional astronomers, but uh, have some connections in, in the scientific community. So um, when I was going to Hawaii a few years back, I made uh, a lot of emails and phone calls and was able to observe, not next to pan stars, but uh, sort of just maybe about a hundred feet over from it, but inside, like there's what they call the astronomer uh, astronomy village up there and it's gated and has like, I 
I don't know, like there's people that protect it there from the US Naval Observatory. So this is nothing you go and mess around with without making prior arrangements. So they told me to show up at this particular time and they were so adamant that I'd be there at whatever time it was, three o'clock in the afternoon. So like you're committing a significant piece of your holiday to do this as well. And I know that's difficult for people. If they're going to Hawaii, not everybody's gonna wanna basically take a couple days out of their out of their vacation to to go and do astronomy. And, and it's really unnecessary if you're just looking to stargaze. Haleakala is beautiful to observe anywhere from. Um, but I kind of want to go to the astronomy, astronomy village up there. And then, uh, you know, they were saying, show up at 3 or 3.30, whatever it was, but don't be early. And I was like, okay, like, whatever. But I got up there and my, I know you've been to Haleakala as well. And my phone wasn't working the best. Um, and the car, was, and you know, you're at 10 or 11,000 foot altitude and your brain's not working great. And I'm like, and I can see where I'm going. I got up there early. I could see her. I did a bit of a walk around. I could see where I needed to go. And I thought, well, it's probably going to take me five minutes to drive there or whatever. Um, and anyway, I misjudged. I end up there like maybe four or five minutes early. And I was like, I'll just sit. There's nobody around. I'll just sit here. And so I'm sitting there. And then like, of course, somebody comes over from the Naval Observatory and they're kind of like, yeah, you can't be here. They like started giving me a hard time just as the person I was there to meet showed up and, and they gave that person kind of a hard time, I think. So, so uh, yeah, it takes a, a little bit of arranging to get up there, but we went through the gate and then you drive up and around. They're doing a lot of construction up there too. Um, yeah. And just as you're going up the little hill, that's where the Pan-STARRS telescope vision go around the corner and they're build. they were building a new solar telescope at the time. And then, uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of neat. Another neat thing happened. So I was staying where a lot of the, um, uh, the technicians stay, uh, sort of up on the mountain, but I was staying at two or 3,000 feet altitude so that I'd be somewhat acclimated. And my nephew had built um, some radio transmitters. He works for um, a company that builds uh, these, these giant radio transmitters. And they had shipped them down there. And the tech who was doing the installation was staying in the same place. And when he told me what he was doing, I gave him a quick rundown of the machinery that he was installing. And he just was so freaked out that I knew what he was doing there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a small world really when it comes to this, but uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. So yeah, it's fun. So I finally ordered a mount. I think I was telling you about this. Yes, yes. I'm excited to hear about this. So I'm getting the uh, the Skywatcher AZ GTI, which is a little LDAS mount. It's relatively affordable, and uh, and it it will track uh, as well as allow uh, LDAS motions, which I really that's how I like to observe. Uh, this is opposed to an equatorial mount. And I just want to be able to stick the telescope on and track planets and view planets without having to continually uh, adjust the telescope. Because so I like to do some sketching and I have uh, been finding it pretty challenging to kind of move the telescope and sketch, especially uh, once you get too, uh, too high power there. So and you've lent me this five millimeter eyepiece and I'm really eager to try that out. So I was going to order a five millimeter eyepiece, but I think I'll try yours out first and then... Um, you know, you were saying you might even sell it anyway, so uh, I might just borrow it for a bit and then uh, figure out what I want to get, and then and then maybe order one or get my own or 
buy one from you or something. Who knows what I'll do, right? So yeah, yeah. Can I want to ask you a question about that sure. mount, Chris? So you know, with any of these tracking mounts, whether it's equatorial or or not, you usually have to do some kind of an alignment. So you set it up. You know, an equatorial mount, you'll make sure it's aligned for mm-hmm. the the north star. Um, and then you usually point it at a couple of bright stars and say, okay, you're now looking at, you know, pick a star, yep. uh, you know, and, and then away it goes with this sky watcher. Can you just point it at a planet, turn it on and will it track the planet or do you have to go through any kind of an alignment procedure? My understanding is you do need to do one of those two star, star alignments. I really, I don't know that much about electronic mounts. And I, I believe this is like a go-to, and I believe you have to use like your Sky Safari software, which which I have oh, on okay. my, uh, my Pixelbook. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I have a few unanswered questions, but um, generally, it receives very positive reviews. It's a very light and versatile mount. I like the fact that it is LDAS. That's my preferred mode of observing, just because um, it's just easier to observe an LDAS than using a corporeal mount, in my opinion. Um, and uh, it can hold my Takahashi 100 millimeter. So I'm excited about that. And that's sort of about good, good weight uh, load for it. Um, my, uh, my, my Takahashi Altaz mount is, is almost overmounting the 100 millimeter, I feel anyway. That 100 millimeter just only weighs five pounds or just, just a hair. I think I'm to 5.3 pounds the way I have it set up now. And I usually put about 13 pounds on my TAC Altaz, so, but the TAC Altaz won't track and I just want to be able to sketch and view the planets for an extended period of time uh, here from my yard or driveway or whatever, you know, it should be, should be a lot of fun. Yeah, tracking mounts certainly are, are nice. Um, when, when you're, particularly with the planets, because the planets do move through your field of view quite quickly, Especially but also, power, yeah. Yeah, especially at high power. So if you want to do any sort of critical observing with some high magnification, it's it's pretty challenging without a tracking mount. Now, it certainly can be done, um, but it depends a little bit on the quality of the mount too, because you may get a little bit of vibration coming through every time you nudge the telescope, which is quite frequent at high magnifications. Yeah. Um, but another option is some of these manual mounts come with slow motion controls. Those help a little bit to track, but really nothing beats, uh, you know, some electronics and some motors to just take all of that hassle out and just have the mount follow the, follow the sky basically. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like the the TAC Lapides Altaz that I have is wonderful. And, you know, if I wasn't trying to sketch, I think I would just be happy with it. I'd probably try to adjust. I think you can adjust it for a slightly lighter load, and I think that would be perfect. However, um, you know, with the with the eyepieces and the high power, you know, once you get up into like, I'm trying to use 150 power here, or 180 power even, and that that's a lot of motion. Like you're constantly trying to keep it centered. If you're just viewing though, and you're not trying to sketch, um, it's no problem. I would almost prefer to do it that way. Um, but with the sketching, like you're trying to hold the, the clipboard and your pencil and, you know, a light, and then you're looking through the telescope. And I, I was doing that with Venus this, uh, uh, this spring and it was just, yeah, 
it, it wasn't as much fun as I as I think it could be. And I looked at getting an equatorial. I know you've you've got a pretty nice equatorial there, uh, Shane. But uh, that was my original intent was to get this to get a, a Vixen equatorial or something like that. But um, you know, I I just have no intention of doing any kind of astrophotography or other things. And I've always observed Altas, so. I thought, hey, this is really great. It's about a quarter of the cost, I think, as a decent equatorial. So save a bit of money there. And, uh, you know, I think as well, this one will work better with lighter telescopes. So I have some pretty small telescopes, uh, 80 millimeters and 60 millimeters and and the 100 millimeter, all really small and lightweight telescopes. And I, I don't, I have a mount that's really good for the 60 millimeter but, uh, and it's my travel mount, but it's definitely overmounted once I get uh, much beyond that. The, uh, that's the, uh, uh, the micro star or the dwarf star deluxe uh, from, from Universal, which I don't, don't think they make anymore. But uh, yeah, I had another thought with mounts, but anyway. Yeah. That's the story um, of the mount. Yeah, fair. Um, you mentioned that I have an equatorial mount and I totally agree with you on the Altaz mounts. They're just, they're more intuitive. I think they're easier to use. Um, and I probably would not own an equatorial mount if uh, it wasn't for two factors. Uh, one is I have that little observatory in the backyard. So I can just leave it set up, which I do, which means I don't have to do the polar alignment every time. Right. Yeah. If I had to do that, I, I wouldn't own it. It would be too much of a pain. I just wouldn't use it. Um, but the other reason why I wanted an equatorial mount um, is I wanted one with good setting circles. So on each of the axis of the telescope, there's you know a little ring with a bunch of numbers and they're known as setting circles. Um, and they, when, when they're calibrated, they basically are tools that you can use to find just about any object in the sky. Um, just like a map for travel, there's latitude and longitude. Well, there's a whole bunch of different coordinates that you can use for things in the sky. So you look up the coordinates in your planetarium software or in your star charts or atlases, I should say. And then you can um, essentially use these setting circles to point the telescope at a spot in the sky where the object is, look through the eyepiece, and it should be there. Um, so I like that for a couple of reasons in the city. One, it's just with the light pollution, sometimes it's a little more challenging to star hop. So having this aid uh, just helps you find things a little bit quicker. Um, the other thing is when I had a, like I, I had a Celestron AVX mount, which comes with a little digital hand controller where you would punch in like the NGC number or, you know, whatever catalog, and then the mount would find it for you. The problem with those handheld controllers is if the temperature gets below probably five degrees Celsius, they just kind of lock up, like the display locks up, it freezes, and they're just not usable. Um, whereas setting circles, it's just two pieces of metal. <laughs> so they work at any temperature. And you know, where you and I live in the wintertime, that can easily be negative 30 degrees Celsius. And yes. uh, you know, electronic digital displays just don't perform in that type of weather. Uh, I know some people put on little warmers on the back, and but just to me, that's a pain. So yeah. I, those are the reasons why I have this equatorial. Um, but I totally agree in terms of ease of use in Altaz is ideal, especially like, you know, in the city where you might even have to pick up the tripod and telescope and everything and move it throughout the course of the night. Um, and Altaz is just simpler to do that with. Yeah, 
Um, the one thing I did read, and that's great because I was going to ask, why would you go with these setting circles? It's neat that you're doing that because that's super old school. Like yep. I haven't really seen people do that in the, in the past many years, but it's so practical, right? Like everybody really gets focused and ends on all the digital technologies and having the latest software and whatever. But, you know, every object has its right ascension declination coordinates and yeah, you can just dial it in on the spools manually, and uh, then you don't have to worry about you know LCDs freezing or or other electronics uh, to go dead or to be damaged by the cold or other outdoor conditions. Uh, one thing I did read about the AZGTI is there was somebody I think uh, in North Dakota or somewhere not too too far from here, and they were observing with it in the winter and having no problems. They were really enjoying it. So awesome. uh, I was sort of uh, happy to, to hear that. Um, probably in the winter, I probably would uh, just go with the Lapides because it's all just all metal construction anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And this, I think, has, has significant plastic components. Um, but, you know, uh, I can still observe the planets and I'm just going to take it out, set it down, line it up, go in and get warm and then come out and, and uh, I'll probably just be observing either that planet or another planet. Um, I'm not really going to do much other observing uh, with it other, other than just that. So, you know, I, I hope it serves the purpose uh, well. But, uh, you know, I, I did get something else. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with it. Um, I did buy uh, an 80 millimeter telescope with it. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? So tell us about this telescope. <laughs> Yeah, it was basically almost like a giveaway with it. So, huh. yeah, it was just another, like, it was just literally another few dollars. And I thought, uh, I'll just get it and see. Um, we'll see what it's like when I get it. And I don't know, maybe I'll just sell it or, you know, I teach, I teach the, my, my thinking. Yeah, I have a lot of different thinking of what I might do with it. Um, so I, I thought I would get it and just try it out and uh and see what it's see what it's all about so i i didn't really even think about it that much uh it also gets me to the free shipping um you were talking about getting free shipping earlier so um it was gonna be oh i think i saved five dollars by doing it that way basically so i don't think it cost me anything extra uh but you've actually ordered something that i'm really excited about um and you've ordered a new chair like an observing chair yeah. So when I think when a lot of people think about astronomy and, and the gear that you need, um, a chair is probably not even on the list, especially when you're starting off. Um, but let me tell you, there is nothing that I enjoy more while observing than a good observing chair. Um, you know, my, I'm six foot three. So to be hunched over looking through a telescope sometimes causes my back to get a little fatigued. And uh, you know, there's been times where it actually ends my observing a little bit early because I'm just, I'm sick of kind of being hunched over. Yeah. But there's, if you really want to observe an object like you do when you do your sketching, yeah. um, if you really want to try to pull out detail and spend some time with one object, part of that, like part of doing that effectively is to be comfortable at the eyepiece and you just can't beat sitting down. Yeah. Um, so many, many years ago, I made my own observing chair. It's known as a Denver observers chair. If you Google that, there's all sorts of free plans on the internet that tell you exactly how to build it. Named after um, John Denver. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> one, one of the keys with a, like with most observing chairs is you have to have an adjustable seat height. 
because the telescope eyepiece, whether it's a Dobsonian or a refractor, uh, you know, it can vary quite a bit depending on the object you're looking at. So um, the, the Denver Observer's Chair works okay, but it only goes up. I think the seat height on mine is only 23 inches high, which is fine for a lot of applications. But um, in fact, if you're using a Dobsonian, it's, it's probably great for just about anything you do there. Um, but with a refractor, if you have the tripod fully extended to, you know, get the, to create some distance between the refractor and the ground warmth, um, 23 inches of seat height isn't enough. So I've wanted a, a, a higher chair for a while. And recently I, I did some research and I settled on the Burlaback Chiron chair. Um, so it goes up to 93 inches. So that's a plus. It has a padded seat cushion, which is a huge luxurious upgrade over, over my plywood Denver <laughs> observer's chair. Um, it has a very wide back, so it'll just be a little more comfortable to lean back and, and get some back support that way. But probably the thing I like most about this is how it folds up when you're not using it for transport. It it's, it's, it's folds up basically to like two, what looks like maybe three eighths sheets of plywood uh, about, you know, so six eighths or what would that be? Three quarters um, of an inch thick, uh, which is really phenomenal. So it'll pack into almost nothing. Uh, it'll be easy to transport and it should be ultra comfortable. Yeah, I'm really excited for this because I would like to get one as well. Um, I might get like a like a next one down kind of smaller one. But yeah, like I'll tell you, the, the one thing, if people are just getting in or even if they've been doing astronomy for a while is the business of the chairs. Like, and there's, I think there's two chairs that you need. I have an observing chair as well. And a friend built that for me. And, and again, like, it's just sort of lived out its life. Like it's at the end of its life. And so I just need a new chair. I haven't used it in a couple of years. It's just, you know, it's just starting to fall apart and it's getting kind of old. And so it's just time to get a new one. And that friend uh, is no longer in a position to make it, uh, make another chair and, and lives uh, 3000 kilometers away from me. Um, so yeah, I've been looking at a new observing chair as well, but then the other is to have uh, like a really good lawn chair, like a, like a reclining lawn chair. And I've bought them from LL Bean in the past. I know other people have bought different ones, but I think having a, a lawn chair or a camping chair that will recline is just amazing. Like I have that chair, it's pretty low. So we were talking about getting out of the wind. Like I find like my chair, I think I'm only about eight or nine inches off the ground when I set that up and I had a really windy night few years ago I went down to do some observing by myself in the grasslands it was extremely windy and put that down by my tire and got my car oriented just right and just did a binocular session you know for a couple hours and it was great I was able to do some sketching and just awesome and I know like when we go out and do our astronomy you know we spend a lot of time sitting in those chairs and it's great to have a rest look up at the stars and drink some water have a snack and then kind of get back up it's hard to be on your feet all night eh? It is. Yeah. A chair is really important. So it, it, it's worth doing a little bit of research and getting yourself a, a nice one because you'll, you'll actually spend a lot of time in it while observing. Well, yeah. And like I was thinking about, you know, sort of back to the observing chair, we were having, I think it was last uh, July and you and I are having this great session with your Teleview Genesis, which is a hundred millimeter refractor. And this is what really convinced me that I needed a hundred millimeter refractor. Although some people might argue, I, one thing I don't need is another telescope in this house, but, um, 
that was, it's such a beautiful telescope. Your mount's working great. But it ended up like I had that list of objects we were working through and it was at the most awkward height for those objects just coincidentally. And, and I think that was the night that kind of put you over the edge to actually buy an observing chair, if I recall correctly. hundred percent. Cause that was the night my back was conking out. And one of our observing friends, uh, Rick Husiak, um, he has a, I think it's a, like a, it, it's a replica or maybe it's the actual cat's eye perch. I think it's called yeah. cat's eye makes a bunch of collimators, but they make, um, chairs as well. So he asked if I wanted to borrow his chair. Um, and it's one of these really high backed chairs. I don't know how high it goes, but oh my gosh, like the comfort. And then it really extended that session. I was about to go to bed and I think we stayed up for another couple of hours after that. Yeah. And it's, and it's too bad. Like we always say like these really good nights are precious. Like, like it takes a lot of effort for us to get out there. It's a long way. Um, you know, we get the gear, you know, we try not to spend that much money on it, but we're just going through a point right now where we are each buying some new equipment. Often we go for years without buying new equipment, but you have made an investment in the gear and then you get out and you've got all these great plans. And then it, it just really is unfortunate when the plans get scuttled by something like um, a chair, right? And, and as expensive as these are, they're really not that expensive compared to anything else. I think we're talking about it like a medium, decent quality eyepiece expenditure, um, which can double the length of your observing session. So I think without a chair, you're probably limiting yourself to a couple hours at, at that telescope. Eh? Yeah, for sure. And you know, if you, if you're somewhat handy and you have a, you know, a couple of basic tools, you know, some saws and some screwdrivers, uh, if you just search for observing chair plans on the internet, yeah, there's, there's all- a whole bunch of different styles and, and uh, projects that you can take on yourself and build it for probably less than a hundred dollars. And maybe even less if you have the, some scrap lumber in your garage or something like that. Yeah. That's how mine was made is we had, I had to buy, I bought like a little camping. It's not a camping stool. It's called like a workshop stool and it had a really nice seat and cushion and then my buddy took, it's something like, it's a little bit larger than a two by four. And then he took a, an old flagpole and bent it in a vise and, and just sort of cobbled it together with other bits and pieces. Um, and it worked great, um, but it's a little unsteady. And again, like I find with the sketching, like I'm doing something pretty specific. And so I'm trying to get set up just uh, very, uh, to do something so specific as sketching. So if you're not trying to do something like that, and I, I think people, I think most people should try to sketch at least a bit. I think it's a well worth worthwhile uh, adventure, but uh, you know, you can, you can get by without, without such things um, pretty easily. You know, you can build your own and, and it would be more than enough just to have something that gives your, your posture a break or even just to change position is actually what I, what I like uh, most of all. So, yeah. So I think, um, uh, that's really all I have to say about uh, episode 22. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's all I have too. I think Great. we covered a lot of good topics. Yeah, well, thanks so much for listening. And uh, we will stop the recording right now.